Life in all its myriad forms cover the jewel of the solar system, Earth. The planet we call home boasts an amazing array of flora and fauna, with the dominant species, us, perched atop the global food chain. But is that perch as secure as we believe it to be? And as we look down, do we truly see all that exists in the shadow of the pedestal of our own creation? Or does hubris blind us to that which we cannot easily see? There are those who say winged creatures glide through moonlit skies or glare from the darkness with crimson eyes. Are the plaster cast footprints filling display cases in museums around the globe proof of the existence of the creature indigenous people of North America named Sasquatch in bygone days? Or are they all part of an elaborate hoax perpetrated against an all too often gullible society? And are we justified in embracing the evidence of eyewitness accounts and other evidence, or equally justified in denying that any new thing could be discovered under the burning light of day or the cool rays of a full moon? Are cryptids such as Mothman and Bigfoot actual living creatures, or do they only haunt the fertile forests and fields that border the pathways leading through the shadows of legend? Hello, this is Charles Romans, your host for Shadows of Legend. Today we're speaking with Todd Neese, an Oregon man who has a lot of information about the creature people call Sasquatch. Mr. Neese, how are you today? I am doing great, Charles. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for being on the podcast. Now, from what I understand, your, I guess, lifelong interest in Bigfoot began with an encounter between you and uh, a couple of other people. Would you like to tell us that story and give us the genesis of your interest? Absolutely. Uh, Just going back a little over 30 years, uh, I've lived in the Pacific Northwest all my life and uh, an avid hunter and fisherman, hiker, mountain climber. And so I'm quite familiar with the, the outdoors, or so I thought. You can't help but hear the stories, the legend, if you will, of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch. But I'd always chalked it up as that of a great campfire story, if you will. Yes. I never thought that that they actually existed. So I'd never picked up a book on the subject. I I never really watched any TV programs on it. Frankly, I never even knew anybody who had had a sighting. And so that all changed for me on April 3rd, 1993. I was a sergeant in a combat engineer unit in the Army. And much of what we do as combat engineers involves the use of high explosives, TNT, dynamite, ammonium nitrate, C4, and and whatnot, depending on the the particular scenario. On this particular day, it was a a Saturday in April, and it was uh, in the coast range in the very northwest corner of Oregon. We had uh, permission to use some private timberland where they had some rock quarries that we were able to access uh, three in total to do three different training exercises with, again, different uh, different scenarios. So and, I, I, if you don't yes. mind me interrupting here, I'm assuming you, you say rock quarries. These are abandoned rock quarries by this time. It's something that had been in, in use before, and then it, people had moved on. Well, no, actually, these were, these were gravel quarries. Uh, there were a number of them situated throughout the, the uh, very large uh, property owned by this timber company. They would use them 
occasionally uh, they had moved machinery in there and, and quarry gravel for when they had punched a road into a new area to do logging, then they'd have their own gravel to, to utilize. I see. But of course, at this particular time, uh, you're correct. These these quarries were not actively being used, but they made for a, a good setting for us, someplace that we can detonate, you say, a couple hundred pounds of of plastic explosives without having to worry about setting the forest on fire. Uh, basically, these quarries would help contain the explosions. Uh, like I said, we had three different quarries we were working in, and we had already blasted at two of the three. We had moved on to that third quarry, which was a cratering charge where we were using about 250 pounds of ammonium nitrate that we had soaked in diesel fuel for several hours prior to the, the actual exercise. So we lit the fuses, and uh, our SOP, obviously, was to get into our vehicles and, and get the heck out of there, oh, find nice. a safe area, and wait for the explosion, uh, and then come back and check our work. Um, so it was we lit the fuses. We all climbed into our vehicles. I was a passenger in the second vehicle, which was a Humvee. So I sat directly behind the driver, and, and being a nice, clear, sunny day like it was, uh, I had the window down, and being a hunter like I like I was, uh, and, and I just uh, it was natural for me to look around the countryside. I had liberty to do that since I wasn't driving. I'm just looking for wildlife, right? So right. elk or deer, whatever might be out there, it was just kind of instinctive for me. Well, we... We're rounding this real wide sweeping right-hand corner when the second rock quarry came into view. We had detonated a large explosive there perhaps an hour earlier. And as this quarry came into view, I noticed these three dark figures standing out in the open down in that rock quarry, literally where we had set the charges earlier. And my first, the first thought that came to my mind is, what the hell are those people doing down there? Because exactly. as you can imagine, with the uh, safety protocols, the dangerous uh, aspect of our work, everybody had to be accounted for, and we didn't dare, you know, send one or two or three people just, you know, walking about on their own. So my my thought was, oh my gosh, we've got some civilians that somehow got through our security perimeter. But, I, I mean, I hardly got that thought into my head. It was like, what the hell are those pe people? And I, the more I looked, I'm like, those aren't people. And I came to that conclusion very quickly. I'm looking at these three figures. They're all three standing on two legs. They're, they're jet black, um, not a stitch of clothing on any of them, uh, covered with dark hair. And they were watching our convoy. They, they, were, they were standing three abreast looking directly across the ravine that we were uh, traversing, trying to get away from this, this explosion that, that was set to go off. But, you know, I knew they weren't people based on a number of things. Number one, the, their profile, their silhouette did not match that of a human. Uh, by that, I mean the, their arms. I mean, I can see it clearly as, as if it were yesterday. These arms went all the way down to their knees not to their hips like a, like a human. Right. The legs were way disproportionately too long uh, in comparison to the torso. Uh, um, and they were huge. I mean, they were, they looked like three bodybuilders, except in this case, they were, they were all black from head to foot. 
And I was just in shock. I'm like, I, I you know, you try to explain mentally, you, you're kind of initially in a, a state of uh, denial because it can't be what what, what well, it is. Exactly, but yes. I, I can't unsee what I saw. So, you know, once I, 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 I accepted what I was seeing. I had a full 25 seconds of viewing time with these. It wasn't something that ran in front of my vehicle. And I think, it was, you know, this was a long viewing period. And again, there were three of them. Uh, with regards to their size, that, that one in the middle was the biggest of the three. And I estimated its height at about, probably about nine feet tall. Very broad shoulders, uh, barrel chested. Uh, you could see a taper tapered waist and like i said they looked like bodybuilders the two that flanked it on its left and right uh again imagine they're they're facing us yes uh so i'm getting a frontal view while that one in the middle there stood there like like a statue almost with the two on either side of it which i estimated to be about at least seven feet high they came up to about the shoulders of of the larger one those two were exhibiting this uh, swaying motion, if you will, um, shifting their weight from foot to foot, uh, rocking side to side, and these long pendulous arms were swinging uh, back and forth uh, in front of their knees. And, and they exhibited that behavior the entire time I watched them. And again, the one in the middle just stood there like a, just like a statue. So now in retrospect, given that... It- would that lead you to believe with the difference in height and behavior that it, what you were looking at might have been one adult and two juveniles? Is that a possibility? Well, I've obviously thought about that. You know, a lot of people are uh, of the mindset that there is this one legendary solitary beast called Bigfoot and that it somehow has shown itself in numerous states and, you know, uh, I can tell you there's more than one. Uh, and this was obviously, uh, as a group, I don't know whether we're talking about, a, a, I assume, a full-size adult male and perhaps a couple of uh, adolescent Sasquatch, but uh, they were definitely out there investigating uh, what we had done, which was to create a minor earthquake and send a mushroom cloud probably 2,000 feet in the air, which in and of itself is kind of puzzling uh, when you would imagine any other animal would be going 360 degrees the opposite direction of, of that kind of activity. These three beings opted to investigate. As to their, you know, if they're male, female, or any sort of, you know, facial uh, description, I can't give you that just based on the distance, but but I could clearly see them and in, in the... I don't know if they were, uh, you know, sent to investigate, if these were some sort of uh, sentries, if you will, sent to see what the hell was going on. This was the after the second of two very large explosions. And, uh, you know, when I think back on that, I'm thinking, why would they, how could they overcome what would be, uh, you would assume, an innate fear in order to come right to the to the location uh, and and take that risk and all I can think about is uh, curiosity well, that, and to me <laughs> curiosity uh, really the need to know uh, the need to find out 
and to be able to put aside any sort of uh, fear factor just speaks uh, of intelligence. Well, see, I would think so, too, and, and that's one of the things that occurred to me. Any animal will be slightly curious, but you take an apex predator, for instance, like a lion, a loud noise such as that would would spook them, as it were, and they would, they would just take off. They definitely wouldn't run toward the noise. But something, something coming yeah. toward that to, well, I mean, for lack of a better way of putting it, it sounds as if they were investigating what you had done. Oh, and, absolutely. I'm convinced of that. And I have to think you didn't just go up there and in 10 minutes set these explosions. I'm assuming you were up there for quite some time. and, and you Oh, had, we were up there all day. Yeah, and yeah. You, you had no indication of these creatures at all until after these explosions had went off. Correct. So, so that also points out the ability, whether it's through camouflage or forethought or, or just a really good hiding place for these creatures to not be seen if they don't want to be seen. Oh, there's, you know, I think it's pretty well established that they're very uh, reclusive uh, as well as uh, elusive. They, they are, I honestly think that that's uh, a survival skill that they've developed over time to avoid contact with humans at all costs. But then again, this was a, a very unique situation that demanded investigation and and they were able to overcome that fear and, and come out and and uh, try to understand what was going on. And, and another thing that occurs to me on, on that, uh, speaking of, of the explosions and things like that and the rock quarries, it, when this company was digging out gravel, they've disturbed the natural lay of the land. There may have been caves or anything in there. So if these creatures were inhabiting these caves, then you come in there and start blowing up stuff. Well, they would have to investigate. Well, uh, suffice to say, we... we literally rocked their world uh we were setting off large explosions uh and all three of these quarries i should say were within about two miles of each other so it was a a fairly contained area in a very vast uh temperate rainforest um but uh like i said after about 25 seconds the the vehicle rounded the corner and i lost sight of them and i just slumped back in my seat and just you can imagine my mind was reeling with a hundred questions trying to just just to accept the fact that what i saw and and that you know it was it just it, it boggled my mind that having hunted that area as much as i had i i'd never seen even a any sort of sign that anything like that could exist but uh, the the staging area was not too far from where that happened and so when we rolled into that 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 safety area, if you will. Yes. My my first instinct was to, when I got out of the Humvee, was to jog back in the direction we had just came from. I I desperately wanted to see them again, and I went as far as I dared. Um, we had uh, again 100% accountability was the word of the day, and and uh, everybody had to be within eyesight of of the of the unit. So I went as far as I dared and uh, tried to get another look at that quarry, but unfortunately there was a little bit of a berm, if you will, between me and the quarry, but yes. I'm still just straining to see whatever I could. I'm standing on my on my tiptoes with my hand to my forehead, just hoping to get another uh, view of them. And as I was doing that, I heard somebody shout out my name, and I looked to my right and Coming my direction was uh, Sergeant Martin. 
Yes. And he, he yells out, what are you looking at? And I dropped my hand to my side. I said, oh, nothing. And he continued to come up my direction and got right up face to face and took a drag off his cigarette, looked left and right to make sure nobody else was uh, within earshot. And he, and he looked me right in the eyes and said, I don't suppose you saw what I saw down at that second blast site. <laughs> and not to be made a fool, uh, I just said, I don't know, Jeff, what did you see? And he said, I saw three black, huge Bigfoot, I guess. And, and I said, that, of course, at that, I said, oh, yeah, Jeff, I saw him too. And, uh, you know, it was nice to have that corroboration, but even without it, it would not have made a difference. You know, I, again, I can't unsee what I saw. And uh, well, no, of course not. And, and those, you mentioned I mean, those, <laughs> those 25 seconds is literally changed the entire course of events and ever since. Uh, everything that's happened to me, it seems, can be tied back to that moment. And uh, it's been uh, an interesting 30 years, a, a journey that I wouldn't uh, trade for anything. I've met so many amazing people along the way trying to learn more and more about these. And, and over time, I guess I've become a subject matter expert in the field, and I've spoken at uh, a couple dozen different conferences uh, around the country, well, U.S. and Canada, and uh, done quite a bit of television, probably 30-plus TV shows and documentaries. Uh, just had a couple come out, and I've got two more documentaries I'm working on. And I actually host my own quote-unquote conference, if you will, yes. um, it's different than any other one because most of these conferences, in fact, I'm going to one uh, this weekend up in Longview, Washington. Most conferences are, you know, the the it's open to the public. Uh, they have paid admission. They have vendors. You know, it's 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 a more of a commercial endeavor, but it, we draw quite a crowd, and 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 people love to come and and learn more about it. In in my case. My conference, or you know, better said, is a, a retreat, if you will, for strictly for uh, Bigfoot researchers. It's a it's an invitation only, four days, three nights camp out, if you will. Uh, we reserve a, a ten acre campground every year. This year will be our seventeenth year that we've held this. We limit it to a hundred people. And there's no press invited, no media, no vendors. Uh, nobody can pay to get in. Uh, it, it's not a profit-making thing. In fact, we put together a budget and just kind of pass the hat to cover expenses. But it's really taken on a life of its own. We've had uh, we've had researchers come from as far away as uh, New Zealand, England, Russia, Australia, all across the U.S. and Canada. They come at their own expense. And it's it's really four days, three nights of, of networking, socializing, sharing different theories, different te techniques, uh, new technologies that have come uh, along the way. And I enjoy putting it on. And uh, like I say, 17 years and, and counting. But uh, yeah, so and, and none of this would have happened but for those 25 seconds. Well, you know, I was going to mention the 25 seconds. It really opens up your mind. It, uh, it, your perspectives change, and 
when I go into the woods these days uh, with that open mindset, you tend to see things that perhaps you not, would not have seen, or if you did, you might have just dismissed it out of hand as a, an unusual divot in the ground, if you will, or an unusual tree structure, what have you, or, or even unusual noises, because these things do vocalize. But having had that experience, it's amazing what you can find when you go out there, when you're really looking at it from the perspective of they exist versus they don't exist, or maybe you hope or believe they exist. But having known they exist, is uh, it's really been beneficial in my research. As well as in interviewing other eyewitnesses, I've, uh, I have interviewed well over 100 eyewitnesses. And, you know, when a the average researcher, and by that I mean somebody who has not had a sighting, interviews somebody, they're able to get certain information from them. And But keep in mind, and this coming from a personal perspective, is, is uh, you're always kind of erring on the side of uh, kind of leery that do these, these people really going to take me seriously? Do they believe me? You know, how how in depth should I go about my experience? But then you put that same person in front of somebody who's shared that experience. And, oh, my gosh, it's like they've known you all their life, uh, you know, because you enter into a fraternity that you can't sign up for. And when you find somebody that's shared that uh, what really is traumatic, at least at least mentally and intellectually traumatic, it's like you're. <laughs> It's like, like I said, it's like you've known each other all your life, and they open up and give you detail that they never would give anybody else, and uh, so it's been helpful in that sense too. Well, I'd say it would be because if if you're thinking that people are going to take what you say and use against you to belittle you or discredit you, then uh, you're going to be circumspect in what you say. But if you think someone is open and receptive to what you have to say, you're going to tell them more. Yeah, exactly. And and the sad thing is, Charles, is that we estimate maybe perhaps one out of 10 people that have had this experience are willing to come forward with it. The stigma that comes with it, uh, the, the whole, uh, let's just say people have a lot more to, to lose than to gain uh, in coming forward. And so a lot of people keep that to themselves. And it's, and it's a shame because, they, you know, all that Every bit of that information about their sighting is important. The data points of, you know, location, time, date of year, elevation, all of that, uh, the activity that they they uh, displayed, and all that stuff just gets lost uh, because people are afraid of their reputations, like you said, having their honesty, if not their their sanity questioned. Yes. And I'll be honest with you, too, even though uh, Sergeant Martin came forward uh, and corroborated what I said, I had pretty much decided to keep it to myself. Uh, at that time, I should point out, I was a traditional guardsman. I was a sergeant in the Oregon Army National Guard. So I had a day job, you know. The, yes. I'd go out, you know, one week in a month and train and, and uh, two weeks uh, annual training and, and deployed when I had to deploy. But... But, you know, in my day-to-day -day life, I was a, not only a non-commissioned officer, but I was a vice president of a shipping company in Portland and, and a family man. And I'd worked hard for my reputation. And so it was, it was 
a real challenge for me to make that decision to go public about it. But for me, I was looking for a purpose in what I'd seen. Yes. Because when I look at the odds that were involved, I mean, had we been there five minutes earlier or five minutes later, they might not have been there. Had I been having a conversation with with the, the two soldiers up front in the Humvee uh, or been distracted in any other way, I could have very well never seen them. And so in looking for a purpose, if you will, in why me, I just decided that there, there, there must be something, some reason I saw what I saw. And, and what it's really evolved into a nonprofit organization, the American Primate Conservancy that I founded in 2015, and our mission statement being the discovery, knowledge, research, uh, recognition, and ultimate protection of the species. And so, hence the word conservancy, but uh, I want to make sure, I mean, we don't know the health of the species, and I do know they exist, It's and that's not a question for me, but I am concerned about the health of the species, because as, as rarely as they're seen, uh, and there's probably seen a lot more than, than your audience probably realizes, uh, uh, but as rare as that is, um, you have to ask how many are left. Why don't we see them more than we do? And that brings up the concern of, are they threatened? Are they endangered? Uh, are they on the verge of extinction? And, you know, Charles, I just want to make sure that as rare as it might be, that my kids, my grandkids, my great-grandkids will have at least the same odds of, of, of experiencing what I did back in 1993. And I think I'd be remiss if I didn't do something to try to get them protected, uh, caution, you know, err on the side of caution. But first and foremost, they, they, we need to get them recognized scientifically, taxonomically yes. recognized as a species. And, you know, that'll make the protection piece a lot easier. But, it, but that's kind of where we're at right now. And that's, uh, that's, I'm working hard in getting that to finding evidence uh, to the degree that, that will get them protected. Well, you know, it, it's uh, interesting that, that you're going at it from that standpoint because a lot of people who will say are Sasquatch detractors, uh, one of the first things they say is, show me a body. When you say, show me a body, it assumes it's going to kill something because a, a body isn't the living creature. Uh, ironically, those people, some of these people who have had the opportunity to shoot a Sasquatch once they, they, they saw the Sasquatch, they, no, it was too human, I couldn't shoot it, I would think it was murder. But so, so the, the, the radical, I guess, potential for violence there will bring me a body and I'll believe Bigfoot exists. So uh, what you're uh, pushing for is, you know, let's not even talk about the body, let's research this creature uh, see if it's uh, what it is as a species and make sure it's healthy and protected. Correct. Um, and you're right. Probably if you want to go back 30 plus years, uh, a body would be demanded by science uh, in almost every occasion, uh, with few exceptions. Uh, no animal, no species or subspecies for that matter has ever been recognized without having a type specimen. And 
ideally uh, one of either sex to be able to, to you know, measure the those uh, uh, dimorphism between the sexes as well as, as uh, compare the species to any other species out there. But I will say this, with the advent of technology, having a body may not be necessary in order to get them officially recognized. And by that, I mean, for instance, uh, you know, DNA really wasn't a big issue going back to, say, the 1970s. Right, at that time. Is when that started coming on. And it was extremely expensive uh, proposition to be able to to study the the genome that way. Um, today, that's not so much the case. And there are other technologies that are that are coming around too that that are uh, a lot quicker and a lot less expensive. So a body may not necessarily be required to 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 get the uh, the DNA required. For instance, a good friend of mine now deceased was uh, Dr. Brian Sykes who was a, a really one of the foremost geneticists, studied at Oxford University in, in London and wrote numerous books on genetics. In fact, he was the first person to be able to identify genome from a single strand of hair. He just passed on here about, uh, oh, maybe two years ago. And uh, so it's sorely missed Sorry, because the last book he wrote was entitled The Nature of the Beast. And it was Brian's intent to apply his skill sets to to the Bigfoot question. And it's an amazing piece of work, but he's convinced that we can certainly be able to collect the genetic material we need through either hair, uh, obviously tissue samples, but even scat, for that matter. Cells do slough off uh, well, yes. uh, in scat. And... Uh, and he goes into detail about how the, how the, the techniques used to get uh, DNA out of uh, hair and scat and, and uh, other things. And, and one of the other things that have come up uh, technology-wise is what they call environmental DNA or eDNA, where now they're able to sample, for instance, soil or water or even the air. And knowing the knowing the the, the general makeup of the soil or the water or the air, they can look for any background DNA that that uh, stands out against that environment. Uh, it's pretty incredible technology. In fact, I, it, it actually like it. started with uh, with fish and wildlife, where they were they were able to actually take water samples in rivers and streams at different times of year and study the water and look for DNA in the water and know exactly when certain schools of fish, certain, say, a winter steelhead or spring chinook were coming through to spawn. Uh, and they were able to determine that just from water samples. And now we're, we're looking at things like collecting uh, soil samples from either tracks or, or nesting areas that, that have been discovered recently in the Olympic National Park. Well, wouldn't that and, be challenging to a, a creature you have no no control information about? Like, for instance, a trout. You know, I got you. A, a, a well, tr- you. You could compare that to other trout DNA, but how would you do that for a creature that, that you have no control for? Well, obviously, Charles, uh, uh, you, you need to have a database. You need to have a, uh, something to compare it to. You're correct. But 
So what is the alternative? Well, the alternative is is you come up with no match. But no match is, in a sense, uh, a match. It's a, and especially if you can compare it to more and more and more samples of presumably the same species, then then we can build that database. Uh, but we're really in the early stages of that. And, it, and unfortunately, a lot of this data is very scattered. Sadly, a lot of researchers covet their, their data, and, and there uh, seems to be some competition between different groups. And, and so you've got a lot of segmented data out there that, that uh, ideally should be brought together and, and, and uh, would help us get to solve this, this mystery a lot sooner. I've tried on a couple of different occasions to bring different groups together. For instance, we, uh, there was a group of us called SHARE, which was uh, Sasquatch Hunters Academic Research Exchange, okay. where we're trying to get different groups to coalesce under one umbrella and, and using an open source database that they can all access and, and not just share their information, but, but, uh, but access other people's information. Uh, and uh, we're still working on that. Uh, another project that uh, was called Project Zoobook, where we're trying to bridge a gap, if you will, between the science and shall we say, citizen scientists out there uh, to get them to come together. We've actually got a number of different scientists, uh, primatologists, zoologists, uh, biologists, paleontologists. We've, we've got a number of scientists that have actually been willing to uh, think outside the box, if you will. But the, say, the argument they've come up with, and it makes sense, is we, you, you don't need to lower us to your level to get us to talk to, say, citizen scientists, and what you really need to do is get them up to speed to where we're at. Not so much in terms of a degree, but but using the same types of uh, statistics and in, 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 in publishing pa- scientific papers exactly. to a degree that they can get published. And so that's something we've been doing through the Project Zoobook is to try to, you know, get with these scientists. What do you need from us? Just tell us what form, what fashion, what format it has to be in in order to be accepted by mainstream science. And so working between accredited scientists and the what I call citizen scientists out there, we're hoping to bridge that gap. But yeah, no, you're right. There's there is there is the problem of not having a a, a type specimen out there if we did it would be real easy to attach the evidence that we've got to that type specimen and and ideally that would be the case but somebody doesn't even have to kill one of these things necessarily i mean all animals are are mortal all animals are susceptible to dying whether it be from old age or injury or disease and and so there's we still hold out the hope that we can find a a carcass of some side whether it be fresh or or even fossilized if we can find something that we can pin down and say okay here's our type specimen then we can start associating all those other uh, genomes and other uh, evidence that we brought into that you know type specimen but we're not quite there yet well, now you you mentioned uh, the lack of that specimen. Wouldn't it seem to be an indication of intelligence? Since since you've already saying these creatures are communal, that it would indicate intelligence, and perhaps they bury their dead. 
I, I've, I've heard every possible scenario out there from the supernatural, paranormal, to the scientific and the biological. And that comes up. And so that's a, that's a good question. But it, to me, in some ways, it's an excuse. I think a lot of people use that as an excuse. Oh, that's why we don't find them, because they bury their dead. Well, we bury our dead, too. And I can pretty much tell you I can dig up Abraham Lincoln tomorrow. But... Well, uh, the true. thing is that, yeah, okay, so they secret away their their dead. To that, I say this. There's there's a number of reasons why we don't find bodies. One is that nature is an incredible recycler. Yes. Okay, and that doesn't mean we haven't found the bodies of, you know, carcasses of deer and elk and, and, and other animals. Uh, I will say that in the state of Oregon, it still remains a fact that we have yet to find a bear that has died of natural causes. Uh, other states, yes, but Oregon still holds out that uh, they found them obviously killed by motor vehicle accidents or or by, you know, obviously hunting and whatnot. But to, to find a North American black bear that has died of natural causes is yet to happen in the state of Oregon. But let's put that aside for a moment. But speaking of the recycling issue, I will say this in 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 that actually in the same general vicinity, uh, the same hunting unit, in fact, that I had that encounter, I had shot an elk, of, you know, we're talking a full size, you know, 800 to 1,000 pound elk one winter in that Saddle Mountain area. And there was a, there was snow on the ground and there was snow coming and I was in a two wheel drive truck and I had to go down in elevation to get to where I found the elk. And I knew I had to go back up in elevation to get out. And it started really turning into a blizzard and I was really concerned about being able to get out. Yes. Uh, so I, I, rather than doing your, uh, you know, um, conventional field dressing and, 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 uh, uh, I just thought for expediency, I just took the, the rump shoulders and the back strap, and I left quite a bit of animal still there on the bone. Uh, I went back three weeks later to that very spot, and there was no evidence whatsoever that that three to 400 pounds of carcass that I left there was ever there. That's how efficient nature is between bacteria predators scavengers uh, insects uh, uh, the weather everything combines to pretty much render an animal back to mother earth pretty quickly right and if you combine that with the fact that as you mentioned earlier that you were concerned about uh, the the health of the breeding population and, and the low numbers It'd be easier to find a carcass from an animal that there were, say, a thousand in an area, as opposed to finding a, a carcass of an animal there are 20 of in an area. Exactly. And that I'm glad you brought that up because it, it, it really comes down to odds and, and statistics. And, and when you have a very small remnant population of anything... Uh, your odds of finding are just that much more difficult. If I if I challenge you right now, I said go find me a go bring me a body of a wolverine. I think you'll spend the rest of your life trying to do that. And there's Probably hundreds is. of hundreds of thousands of them. Right. Um, so don't challenge me to do the same when we're dealing with maybe one or two thousand of something spread out over tens of thousands of square miles. So, but you know, going back to the whole concept of a, of a burial or funeral for that matter the whole ceremony that involved in that i did some research recently in a book actually 
printed in the 1800s about uh, by biologists that had studied primates uh, to include gorillas in in Africa. And in this one particular case, they were in the Congo, right? And so you think, you're like, okay, okay uh, back then they just, all oh, they were out there to just collect specimens, uh, whether they're dead or alive, they wanted to bring a specimen back for exhibit or possibly alive for, uh, for to put in a zoo. Um, and in this one particular case, they were dealing with a fairly large primate. Uh, they ran into a group of them in the Congo and they hauled off and shot one. And immediately, uh, the troop scattered, and they went to collect the body, and they brought it back to their camp, and they were going to bring it, you know, put it on their ship and bring it back to, to their country of origin. And what was amazing about that is that a little bit later, a group of nearly 50 of these primates came into their camp and made all kinds of, of uh, commotion. They wanted their fallen comrade back and they were willing to risk becoming a casualty themselves and uh, so the guy brandished his rifle and apparently they they recognized it as the source of what killed their friend and all but one of them took off when he when he brought out the rifle yes it, and the one that stayed back presumably a, an alpha male stayed back and in his words, he said this thing calmed down and began to almost plead with him for the body back. The guy says, I'd never seen anything like that in my life with any species. Yes. And ultimately, the guy surrendered the body back to this large male, and it was carried away. And it was it's an amazing story. They said they never shot another one because of it. It just it hit them so hard. So, you know, getting back to the whole burial thing, I mean, you can say now, in, in looking back at that story from the 1800s, that they do take some sort of, there, there, there's certainly some emotion involved in when there's uh, a death amongst them, and there's, there's this, uh, this need to do something with the body, because they came back to collect it. And, uh, but what they did with it, I don't know. I think they just really wanted it to get it away from the humans. I did see a special not long ago where, where they had spent months and months following some, uh, I think they were bonobos, and one of them had died. And they literally grieved for it uh, for, in some cases, a couple of days before they, were, they finally gave up and realized that, that they were gone. And, and they left it behind. So in that case, there was no burial. But it was just a fascinating story about they do care about the dead. And as far as burials are concerned, I don't know. I, I don't, we don't have any evidence of primates other than humans going through that ritual, if you will. But it's an interesting, interesting concept for sure. So now if uh, somebody wanted to, to possibly view your research and, and connect with you and, and gain some insight from your experiences over the last 30 years, how would they connect with you? Would it would like social media? How... What's the best way? Well, you know, I'm not real savvy. Uh, you know, I'm 62 years old, and I, 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 I think about my dad. He, he, he was always afraid of deleting something by hitting the wrong key. I'm not quite there, but I mean, I, I, I don't get real involved in social media, but I do have a Facebook page uh, just under my name, Todd Niece. Uh, I also have a, a Facebook page under American Primate 
Conservancy. Yes. That they can go to. But if somebody wants to contact me directly, I suggest they do so by email at my uh, email account is American primate one word american primate at aol.com other than that proud to say i'm finally writing my first book and hope to get it published here this this spring and it's going to summarize virtually every aspect of of my research uh over the past 30 plus years and uh uh, look for it. Um, it's going to be called Living Large, Bigfoot in America. And, we'll, uh, we'll be and on your... I have I've just endeavored to really go from every aspect from origins where I believe they, they, they how long they've been a species, where they came from. Again, all of it speculative, of course, uh, but everything from birth until death and i do touch upon that subject that we just talked about about what happens when they do die and things that a lot of people haven't really considered such as their how do they think what what is a day in the life of of a bigfoot or sasquatch you know they they're all individuals just like you and i they all have independent personalities certainly they share some common traits but how intelligent are they what type of intelligence they have, such as primal intelligence versus academic intelligence. One doesn't, just because they don't have an IQ of 180 doesn't mean they're not intelligent. In fact, in many ways, they're more intelligent than we are. They're survivors, and they can survive under conditions that, that we wouldn't even begin to. So who's really smarter? I delve into what is intelligence. Uh, it's not just a collection and retention of information it's it's the personality is developed on an individual basis within the species dependent on certain experiences that they've had that maybe other ones of the species haven't you know so you can't just stereotype these uh these this species and so it goes into great depth in that way and uh we talk about the exchanges between eyewitnesses uh uh, encounters going back to really four or five hundred years ago, and if you go into the uh, indigenous people, uh, those those reports go back over twenty thousand years. Yes. Um, we talk a little bit about research and and what constitutes evidence and and some of the equipment and the uh, techniques strategies involved and and how to handle evidence. And then lastly, uh, we talk about the whole conservation and protection efforts that, that uh, we're doing in the conservancy. So, so yeah, um, I, I hope uh, when it comes out uh, that people enjoy what, I, what I've done. And hopefully I can save them a little bit of time because uh, I think after reading that book, they can, they can uh, take it from there. Well, it sounds like it'd be a fascinating read. And how, uh, how are people going to get updates on this? So do you, you know? Put your I would again. I would Facebook just say uh, uh, certainly. You can if you Google my just Google my name or go on YouTube and do a search. You'll find a lot of the documentaries and, and television shows and conferences I've spoke at. But you can also, like I say, go to my web page. Uh, excuse me, my um, my Facebook pages. I do have a web page, but it's currently under construction. I see. I'll put it out there just the same, but it's it's going to change dramatically here in, in, in the next few months. Uh, and that's American Primate at org 
or excuse me, AmericanPrimate.org. Yes. It's out there, but it's not really functioning right now because we're changing formats and, and changing vendors. Uh, but keep an eye on that as well. And and uh, like I say, feel free to email me at AmericanPrimate.org. God, here I go again. AmericanPrimate at AOL. Yes. Dot com, and I'd be more than happy to answer people on an individual basis. Well, now I, I know that in a lot of cases, people like to speak in person. So if there was some sort of schedule of, of the events you plan to attend this year, that would be nice if people could check up on that. Maybe if you're going to be in the early area or within driving distance, what have you, that they might want to stop in and see you. Well, I'm scheduled to speak at two conferences so far this year, one in uh, in June, which is the Sasquatch Summer Festival in Oak Ridge, Oregon, kind of uh, central Willamette Valley. Yes. And then I'll also be uh, speaking at my own gathering there that we talked about it, yes. it which is uh, euphemistically called beachfoot <laughs> b-e-a-c-h-f-o-t and it's just a play on names because we we hold that conference uh, along the coast in oregon right. so i just came up with beachfoot but uh yeah um i'm sure there will be more conferences coming up throughout the year and i'll, I'll post those on my facebook page uh, again either just Facebook under my name, or or you can go to uh, American Primate uh, Facebook page as well. But I'll be putting that out. Well, I guess at this point uh, we we've covered uh, a lot, so that uh, we can uh, wrap it up for now. But I'm looking forward to to checking out your book, and uh, I think that uh, you have a lot of credible information that people could find useful. Well, I hope so. But thank you for having me. Uh, appreciate your time, and uh, let's do it again. Definitely. And I look forward to talking to you again in the future. This is Charles Romans, and on behalf of myself and our guests, thank you for joining us on this walk through the shadows of legend. If you like what you heard, please follow us and visit our website at shadowsoflegend.com and support our Patreon page to help keep the content flowing. And if you would like to be a guest and share your own brush with a stranger paranormal, don't hesitate to email us and include a contact number. The strange and surreal, the normal and the paranormal are all aspects of the world in which we live. As you reflect upon the stories we have shared, keep in mind that the people sharing these stories are actual, real people just like us. Were the stories shared compelling enough to be given credibility, or should they be relegated to the deeper part of the shadows? But when determining this, it might be a good idea to keep an open mind, because when we look around, we might discover that our own world is less brightly lit than we once thought. Until next time, I'll be waiting for you in the shadows of legend.